months later, proclaiming themselves shocked by the news that Kate Moss uses cocaine. Those of us who had been paying attention were not shocked at all. This protest, for example, outside the U.S. Embassy in London on May 20, 2005, was the kind of clue some of us had been noticing. Shouting, Down, down, USA! Down, down, USA! The protesters called for the killing of Americans, the death of the U.S. President, the death of British Prime Minister Tony Blair, the bombing of Britain, and the annihilation of the U.S. Capitol. Nuke, nuke Washington! Nuke, nuke Washington! Bomb, bomb the Pentagon! Death, death, Tony Blair! Death, death, Tony Blair! Death, death, George Bush! The protesters chanted. Holding their Qurans high, they called for death and mayhem, praising the destruction of New York's Twin Towers on September 11, 2001, and saying the White House is next. I did not think these demonstrators were just joking then, and I certainly do not now. The trend has been in evidence for years. British-based terrorists were involved in the planning and execution of the suicide bombing of American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania in 1998. They were involved in the planned attack on the American embassy in Albania. They were associated with the attempted attack on Los Angeles International Airport in 2000, and, most important, with the September 11 attacks on New York and Washington. One week after the London bombings, it was reported that Mohammed Sadiq Khan, believed to have been the operation's field commander, had been in contact with a suspected recruiter for an extremist group in New York. Two other men linked to the plot had direct ties to the United States. One had travelled recently to Ohio, another had been a student at an American university. I have those same handwritten notes beside me now. On the evening of July 7, 2005, having spent the day following the news on the Internet and exchanging emails with my friends in London, I wrote these words. The same thing will happen soon in the United States, and the bombers will come from Europe. They will come from Europe because it is comparatively easy to enter the United States if you carry a European passport, and because Europe is, as it always has been, the breeding ground of the world's most dangerous ideologues. Although I take as much satisfaction as the next woman in being right, I'd much prefer to be wrong about this. Unfortunately, I don't think I am. The Return of the Repressed to judge from the number of books published in recent years about the challenges of renovating a farmhouse in Tuscany or Provence, large swaths of Europe are now populated by middle-aged American divorcees living large on the alimony and greatly occupied by the tending of their new olive terraces. As far as they're concerned, the chief problem with life in Europe is the difficulty of coaxing the medieval plumbing in their newly acquired Renaissance villas into action. These women are survivors. They grow from this tough experience. Many Americans know this version of Europe, alimony Europe, Fodor's Europe, Europe on $5 a day, quite well. They know it from books and movies. They know it from their summer vacations. They remember backpacking through Europe after graduating from college. Amsterdam was great until Flounder fell in the canal. They think wistfully of that ad in the back of the New York Review of Books, 
Dordogne, 18th-century stone manor, antiques, all original beams, 18-foot cathedral ceiling, fireplace, pool, 28 bucolic acres of woods, meadow, fruit and walnut trees, stream, must be willing to feed goats. When they visit Europe, they travel from one historic and lovely city centre to another, making use of Europe's convenient railroads. They do not visit the places most Europeans actually live and know little about them. Indeed, most Americans born after the Second World War have grown up thinking of Europe, Western Europe in particular, as not much more than a congerie of windmills, gondolas, dissipated monarchs and peculiar toilets. They have considered the political and moral essence of Europe, when they have considered it at all, to be much like our own. They have, of course, heard the stories about the cancerous, deranged thing of the past, but that Europe, they believe, is long dead, vanquished by the United States in the First and Second World Wars, resurrected in our image through the Marshall Plan. Europe? It's free, prosperous, peaceful and democratic now, right? We don't need to worry about it any more. Yes, Europe is peaceful, prosperous, free and democratic, relatively speaking. It is not Sierra Leone, and I'm not saying it is. I do not propose we worry over much that German nationalists will hijack commercial jets and pilot them into our skyscrapers. American troops stationed in Italy may leave their bases without benefit of armoured convoys, unworried about the threat of capture and beheading by enraged fundamentalist papists. All of that is true. It would be absurd to deny it. Europe's achievements since the Second World War have been real and significant. There is unprecedented prosperity on the continent, with standards of health care and education that in many places exceed those in the United States. The great powers of Europe are no longer cannibalizing one another. The furor Teutonicus has, for the moment, subsided. No doubt much of the darkness has been repressed. But the repressed is known for returning. Since the collapse of the Soviet Empire, and particularly since September 11, some Americans have begun to sense uneasily a certain lack of love from our transatlantic brethren. Many Europeans did not seem to grasp the enormity of September 11 and never denounced the event as forthrightly as we had expected. The rift over the Iraq War exposed an extremity of anti-American passion that simply made no sense particularly given that European intelligence agencies were, like ours, persuaded that Saddam Hussein was developing weapons of mass destruction, still more so because European cities would have been the obvious targets of those weapons. Iraq was, after all, believed to be building not long-range but medium-range ballistic missiles. To any European capable of reading a map, the implications of this should have been obvious. The spectacle of European leaders and citizens declaring themselves, in all seriousness, to be more alarmed by American imperialism than by Saddam's, quite rightly made many Americans wander to their bookshelves and begin thumbing through their copies of Let's Go, Mexico. The American political analyst Robert Kagan has suggested, reassuringly, that the divide is not as serious as it looks. It is just that Americans are from Mars and Europeans are from Venus. Now, I'm all for interplanetary diplomacy, who isn't? But having lived in Europe for most of my adult life, I see things just a little differently. Blackmailed by history I use the word Europe here as a shorthand, 
I mean by this the former members of the European Community, a distinct historic entity comprising most of Western Europe and Great Britain. These nation-states are united now by their entangled pasts and their common dilemmas. I'm writing about this Europe because it is the Europe I come from and the Europe I know. Having never lived in Eastern Europe, I will leave that subject to someone who has. I come from this Europe in the sense that my grandparents, musicians born in Leipzig, were refugees from the Nazis. They crossed every border in Europe, from Danzig to Bilbao, in their flight from Hitler's armies. Their lives, and thus mine, were shaped by Europe's history. I know this Europe because I've lived in it for many years, studied its languages and history in its universities, and worked in its economies. I've closely examined its legal and medical systems, its bureaucracies, its rental markets, and its tax codes, not so much out of academic curiosity, but because for anyone living here a close examination is inescapable. These are therefore personal stories. They're unified, however, by two larger themes and a set of questions. The first theme is that Europeans are behaving now as Europeans have always behaved. Many seemingly novel developments in European politics and culture are in fact nothing new at all. They have ancient roots in Europe's past. And what is that past? From the sack of Rome to the Yalta Conference, that past has been one of nearly uninterrupted war and savagery. Ethnic wars, class wars, revolutionary wars, religious wars, wars of ideology and genocide are not aberrations in Europe's history, they are its history. An interregnum from these ancient conflicts endured from 1945 to the end of the Cold War, when Europe's destiny was in the hands of the two superpowers. With the collapse of the Soviet Empire, however, history has reasserted itself. Those disturbing sounds you hear from Europe are its old familiar ghosts. They are rattling their chains. The second theme is that this history has culminated in a peculiar, palpable European...